and welcome to Labour's New Leadership Podcast, the inaugural episode. Very exciting. I'm your co-host, Matt Dean, joined by Max Finch. And over the lifetime of this podcast, we'll be talking about how we can help the Labour Party to win a place in government, what we can do to do that. And joined today by Lloyd Dudridge, who is the national organiser for Labour to Win. And you'll be hearing more from him in just a second. Amazing. Thank you, Matt. So, Lloyd, we've got you here. Thank you so much for obviously being uh, our guinea pig, I suppose, for the first episode. Hopefully we don't, hopefully we don't muck it up. Amazing. We wanted to kick it off with a couple of kind of quick fire questions to put you on the spot. So we thought we'd just ask really simple things. What's your favourite film? Cool Runnings. Oh, that Best is meal a... you've ever had. Oh, fish and chips from Chariots, fish and chip by in Woodford. <laughs> a little bit of a shout up there. And who has the best hair in the Shadow Cabinet? Oh, now West Streeting would like me to say West Streeting, so I'm going to play it safe and say West. <laughs> but Lisa Nandy pushes him close. <laughs> Re- really hope Wes and Lisa are listening to that. <laughs> See, that, that's kind of one of those ongoing answers that we're going to love to kind of get from a couple of people. I've got my money on Louise Haig, and I'm getting the majority of the votes from that front, mainly because I'm jealous of her kind of colour of hair. But um, I, 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 I think David Lammy could be a surprise winner on that one. <laughs> fair shout, fair shout. <laughs> yeah, that's... If we ever have David on the podcast, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but we kind of wanted to kick it off by having a little bit of discussion. We'll link the kind of the article that we referenced throughout this discussion here uh, with yourself in kind of the, the description box. But you wrote an article a couple of months ago uh, for politics.co.uk about kind of our plan for a moderate Labour Party. And in there, you talked about kind of the Labour Party or the purpose of it is kind of kind of designed in a multiple way. But we wanted to get kind of your opinion. What's the purpose of the Labour Party? Why is it built? Why was it founded? And how does that kind of relate to today, Lloyd? So I think the Labour Party has always been at its best when it's a pluralist tradition that understands that it's a pluralist tradition. Um, and I think for some parts of our history, that's been stronger than others. For me personally, I can only put in my perspective of what I think the Labour Party should be and try and win that argument with other members. Uh, I think the Labour Party should be the vehicle that allows citizens across our nation to live the life that they want to live, to free them up to have the opportunities to live the life that they think is best for themselves and their family, not to be too paternalistic, but actually put those conditions in in place to allow people to live the best life that they see fit for them and their families. And one thing you kind of didn't mention in there, and I'll kind of just pick you up on that, you didn't mention the word socialism or anything around it. And kind of the article is really interesting because you kind of dig in it in terms of, and kind of one quote you specifically said is, our tradition has no kind of set text and scriptures. Yeah. Does that really feed into you about very much labour needs to be adaptive, it needs to almost be like a living organism, kind of changing and adapting to the current issues, the current dilemmas and kind of meeting them head on? Yeah, I mean, I've always thought that actually Labour politics, and politics in general actually, across the full spectrum of politics, is best when it's evolutionary, when it passes a sort of natural selection test, when it's put in live and real conditions, and is seen whether it can survive and flourish or not. And I think the best ideas, the best political ideas, and that includes socialism at its best, are those ideas that are the most able to adapt to changing conditions. Um, And you can only do that by admitting that they're not fixed in stone. Because once they are fixed in stone, they become a museum piece. They become a dead organism 
whether it's socialism, whether it's conservatism, whether it's liberalism, if they're not able to change, if they're not able to adapt, if they're not able to address the situations that they find themselves in, I think they're weaker for that. So I think politics, and especially left-wing politics, is at its best when it is evolutionary, when it is adaptive for its scenarios, and when it realises that all politics is based in real-world situations and doesn't stand above them. And kind of one of the things... Sorry, Matt, go on. <laughs> Cheers, Max. Uh, so what do you think then, Lloyd, uh, the socialism of the 2020s should look like? Because it's quite tempting, isn't it, sometimes to sort of look back at people like Keir Hardy, Clement Attlee, yeah. and more recently Tony Blair in 1997 and think, yeah. well, that's our model, that's what we need to pursue. But I don't think personally that that's, that, you know, we can get all of our answers from the past. Some of them, sure, but not all of them. So what do you think um, left-wingism and socialism for the 2020s should look like? No, I, I, I agree with that. I mean, that basically is the, is the politics of the Great Gatsby. You know, it's the politics of keeping looking back uh, with a forlorn hope that it will return again. Keep looking at that green realism. light. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're yeah. reminding me of my GCSEs too much here. Can we, can we move on from this point? <laughs> no, no, I'll let, let Lloyd answer. Rather than the realism of where we are now. I mean, I, I, I mean my personal opinion, rather than the sort of Labour to win fixed position, because thankfully... In line with what I said earlier, we don't have fixed positions on policy in that way, is a real politics that frees people up around the changing labour market. Um, so around things like redistribution of time, because I think people will have a lot more leisure time than they did previously. I think actually the traditional work will not be seen in the same way. We've already started seeing that during the pandemic. So I think a sort of universal basic income or national direct payments that free people up to take risks in their life and live the lives that they want to live um, makes sense. I think actually we've seen during this pandemic how important to work collaboratively on foreign policy is and that actually a sort of little Britain mentality is going to be a weakness moving forward. Um, but I do believe in, in a socialism that is rooted in this country, that isn't scary to this country, that appreciates its traditions and wants to work with it rather than against them. Um, a country that is diverse, because I think actually, if we're going to believe in a politics of evolution, all of that is based around diversity, is based around change, is based around adaptation. And to really change things, you need to have a diverse country. It can't all look the same way, it can't think the same way. And I think any policies and politics that allows people to have that sort of mindset, I really believe that universal basic income can help with that, can only be a positive. So I think a socialism rooted in change, in adaptation, and in freedom is the way forward. And kind of yeah, so for, for anybody listening who's not aware, Lloyd is also on the executive of Labour for a Basic Income, and we will come back to that later. Uh, Max, think you were about to, about to ask something there? Yeah, I, Lloyd, I just wanted to touch on something that you've mentioned previously is what Tony Benn analyses as the signpost and the weather veins kind of mentality. Do you mind kind of expanding on that kind of essentially metaphor in a little bit more as you were kind of touching on it in that point and explaining to our listeners kind of where you sit in kind of a signpost route or kind of the weather vane person? Well, I mean, Tony Benn very famously said there's two types of politicians, a weather vane that basically goes with the weather and a signpost that stays solid, whatever the weather, in the direction that they want to travel in. I, I think a politician that isn't willing to embrace both traditions is weakened. 
to be fair. I think a really solid signpost only shows you one way to go. And it isn't actually able to adapt. And I think in the era of sat-navs and in, in, in the era of different ways of doing things, I think we see that there's the weather vane has something to say for it as well. That it's not necessarily weak. It is actually a skill of understanding. Because unless you actually understand the weather, you're not able to set yourself for it. You're not able to adapt. You're not able to even get a coat on to know whether it's raining outside. If you don't know what's going outside, how are you going to be able to convince people? Because you actually haven't got an understanding of what's going on in your surroundings. Because an alternative for saying weather is surroundings, you know? And I think it's very important to understand your surroundings. So I would say, look, we don't want someone that completely gives way whenever there's a challenge, because actually that is a weakness. But one of those challenges is the situations that you find yourself in. That actually anyone that knocks on the door for more than two minutes when they go out canvassing back, hopefully when we're allowed to, will realise that political discussion is a live thing. It's not a, a dead thing that you go to a door like a, a, a sort of evangelical. It's a process of listening, of understanding, of working for a politics to work for the community. And I don't think actually casting the weather vanes as a school of politics that we should avoid really does a service to our politics at its best. So both, in my cop-out way, true weather vane to the end. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think it is it is an interesting sort of idea of politics to come back to. I know, you know sort of Tony Benn came up with it first quite a while ago, but it, we've sort of seen it in action in, in recent years. You know, we've got Boris Johnson, the ultimate weather vane, as, as Prime Minister. And then for the last five years, Labour has been led by an absolutely rock-solid signpost who doesn't change his mind on anything for 40 years. Uh, so we've seen the strengths and weaknesses of both kinds of, of politics in action. But I very much agree with what you just said there, Lloyd, that there needs to be an, an, an amalgamation of the two for a politician to be successful. Do you think um, that you see signs in Keir Starmer that he can sort of blend those two traditions of signpostry and weather vainery? I hope so. I, I certainly think he's he's moving his, in the right direction. I think he really came into. I mean, we, we can divide people into signposts and weather vanes, or we can say populists and pluralists. And I think actually he came into a politics that was really saturated with populism on both sides of the political spectrum. And he had questions that he needed to address, and a tone that he needed to set, um, and a brand that he needed to reset. Because actually. Yes, we're a socialist party, but we're a democratic socialist party, and our test is at the ballot box. And we failed that test for a long time um, in its deepest version in 2019. And that means the brand, the politics, isn't working, because if you get away from the democratic test, then what are you left with? You're left with sort of might is right. You're left with a politics that we in the Labour Party don't believe in. So I think he had to reset the Labour Party so it was on a more pluralistic footing so it would get a hearing again and i think it's still very much early days i mean we've been in the middle of a worldwide pandemic for most of it so i think kira's got the tone right we'll see how ambitious we're, we're going to be on policy moving forward i don't see any reason to think that Keir won't be ambitious on politics and policy but to be honest there's no point putting forward a huge uh, political agenda when it might be irrelevant in four months time because of covid you know, it's silly. It's not smart politics. Yeah. How do you think, I mean, one of the biggest questions and one thing that I'm really keen to kind of pick your brain with is essentially how is Keir Starmer doing in the grand picture? 
because you can stare at a poll all day long and there are plenty of them out there and see that Labour's behind at the moment. But we've got May elections just around the corner. How do you think they're going to go? Is that going to be a defining moment or is that just kind of a, a hurdle that Keir Starmer just needs to get across and then you've got the shining gates at the far end of them? I think that's a really fair question. I think it's the, the sort of ultimate question for those of us that believe in democracy and its importance. But, but I equally think if the Labour Party keeps thinking of itself as a leadership club, it's going to fail. If, if it keeps thinking that all you need to do is change the leader, then it's going to fail because it's failed for the last number of elections. And I think what, what Keir has got right is saying, look, it's not just about changing the face. It's actually changing the leadership in with a capital L. And actually, it's about saying, I'm going to do politics in a different way because the last few times of doing it has failed. I think we'll have an interesting election because we've never in this country really been in a situation like this post the Second World War. Uh, I think we will gain council seats. I think we will gain councillors. Do I think it will be numbers that we think, wow, this is going to be got us on the, the path to a general election victory. No, but sometimes it's slow and it's sure and it's sensible and it's problematic. And I think that is the approach that Keir Starmer has to have because it's the first year in the job, you know, and we're in the middle of unprecedented times. So I think we will make progress. Will it be the progress that all of us will be absolutely excited for? Possibly not, but for a long time we haven't made any progress. So... I will, I will take steps in the right direction at the moment, certainly. And I think, yeah, I think it's... We'll, we'll do better in some parts of the country than others. Yeah, I, I think that's probably a, a fair assumption. There are there are parts of the country where we'll do, I, I think, pretty well. I, you know, I'm, I'm up in Manchester, and you know, Andy Byrne up here is he's basically a hero. You know, yeah. he's up for re-election, so hope you know, not counting any chickens, but hopefully no. we should see him re return for a, a, a second term. Well, if Andy um, Byrne doesn't win, we really have to start to worry. So I think we, we, we are in right. we are in trouble then, aren't yeah. we? If, if yeah. a man who who won, I think, 64% of first choice votes in 2017 before he'd had that great moment in in front of the city standing up for us all if he comes no, in like, really just, are just, so just to build on that point before before you ask any one as well i think it actually speaks really powerfully to those labor people that have been elected before and shows us a pathway to power through actually governing so i mean some of our most popular politicians like andy burnham like sadie khan in london are people that have actually been in power to do things you know, to actually implement our politics. Because I think, actually, incumbency is always easier. Governments do tend to win. Oppositions do tend to lose. It changes somewhat in local elections and midterms. But overall, incumbency matters. That's why MPs usually do so well in, in, their, in their home seats. And I think, actually, the best pathway to us winning and in the months that we've got between now and May is to point to those in government across the country, in local government, in mayoralties, in positions in, in the Scottish Parliament, even though it's in opposition there, and say, this is what these people are doing. Don't just listen to our values, listen to our practice and look at it. And when you do, you might like it, because actually people tend to vote for Labour once they're in power again. And I think actually people like Andy Burnham and Sadiq and others really speak to that message. And yeah, I think absolutely. And I think that's kind of what, what excites me about the Labour Party at the moment. We've got 
I mean, from my personal perspective, we've got a forward thinking mentality where we're thinking the problems of 2024 are going to be unlike anything we've encountered before. But I think it's also exciting to see the likes of Gordon Brown, Peter Munson, Tony Blair, giving advice to the Labour Party in its current iteration and having conversations with Keir, talking to him about what worked back in the 1990s, how he could potentially develop it for an agenda based in the 2020s and move it forward from there. Obviously, for Lloyd, Peter Manson's a big part of Labour to win on that front. How has his advice potentially even, from a more personal perspective, shaped your opinions or is kind of shaping how Labour to win kind of are attempting to influence the wider Labour discussion? I think people like Peter and people of that generation, that very successful generation, speak to the mentality that we're trying to bring into the Labour Party, which is one that is dedicated to winning. And that is winning for a reason, because we've also, we've often been criticised as you just want to win for the sake of it, right? You actually don't want to do anything on the other side of, uh, of the uh, election. And my argument is everything we have done that has been worthwhile has been done through winning elections, right? All the things that we're proud of, from the NHS to the minimum wage to the Equalities Act to nationalising industries, right? has come through winning, hasn't come through losing. And I think actually, people of that generation, what they have done best for us is to instill that mentality back in us. A sense that actually, winning is both pragmatic, but also moral and radical. Because without winning, there is no radicalism, there's just talk. And I think that's that's mostly where Peter wants to be. I don't think he wants to be a sort of preacher for all times, you know, come down from on high, and tell everybody how to do it. I think he's and others are more saying, look, you are in the driving seat now, right? Remember that and make the most of it while you are, because you don't know when you're going to have the opportunity to win again. So wherever you are, take those opportunities to win. Take those opportunities to be the real political force in the country that we know the Labour Party can be, because there isn't actually a blueprint from the 1990s Right, that we can just wheel out, reheat in the microwave and say, let's get going. But there is a mindset. And I think that mindset is important to return to. That mindset of winning for a reason and that winning is radical. And I think hopefully people like Peter can instill confidence and sort of resilience in people in our party that's been done before and it can be done again. Yeah, I mean, we've we've already talked um, earlier earlier on during during this podcast about how you know we can't sort of take all of our lessons from from the past and that sort of you know that obviously ties in with um, with sort of the the reemergence of people like Peter Mandelson and Gordon Brown as as louder voices within the Labour Party. But by the same token, of course, there are things that we can learn from from the past. So, what sort of do you think are the the biggest lessons that we can learn from you know big victories like 1997 and also from from 1945, which is feeling more relevant than I ever thought it would, coming out out of COVID? Well, if I may, I'll probably pick a lesson from each. Then, I mean, I wasn't around in 45, and I was pretty young for 97. Um, so, but I, I will give my best. I, I think the first lesson from 97 is be a party for the country, speak to the country, don't alienate potential voters you know i mean i don't know if you've read the book left out that came out of the 2019 yeah, yeah. election a lot of it is great and some of it turns on saying that we got the stuff around the russian poisoning 
wrong and we got the tone completely wrong on that, which I agree with. But I actually think one of the turning points came earlier, and that was when there was a scolding of thought within our party that we don't have friends who are conservative, right? That we don't speak to conservatives, that said to a lot of the country, that we don't want to work with them. And if you don't want to work with them, if you don't want to speak to them, how are you going to win them over? Because you're not even yeah. attempting to. You don't even want to. You're alienating yourself straight away. And I think the lesson from 97 was they were proud that they were speaking to the whole country. They didn't parcel it off in the same way, actually, that we did from 2015 onwards. This isn't just a sort of uh, recent sort of Jeremy Corbyn and momentum phenomenon. And it goes about a bit further with a sort of 35% strategy under a Miliband. It's not, it's not something new that we've parceled out the country, that we look at it in a divided and fragmented way. And I think having stood for election myself in the past, you actually have to want people to vote for you. And in 2019, it seemed that we didn't want everyone to vote for us, that you had to subscribe to a certain set of beliefs and a certain set of principles if we wanted you to vote Labour last time around. And to be honest, there's not that many people that would sign up to any set of beliefs. And I think what sort of 97, 2001 and 2005 taught us is that actually you've got to go and speak to the whole country and be prepared to call everybody's vote or at least approach everybody with the mindset that you can get them to vote for them. Because I think the fragmented politics of the past, recent past, is just not going to work. So that's my lesson from 97. My lesson from 45 is read the country understand where the country is, that actually re-national, well it wasn't re-nationalising, it was just nationalising in the main, although there were some things that we re-nationalised from the coal mines from previously, but nationalising industry after the Second World War was a mainstream pragmatic thing because most of the industries that had been nationalised during the war. Most people were familiar with it, most people were comfortable, you know, the NHS was a very mainstream idea, even though it seems very radical now, because it met the demands of the time. People were coming out of the war, they had worked together, and they wanted to work together in peace as well. And I think it's about really understanding the country and where it's at, and when's the time to push certain agendas, and when's the time to speak in certain languages. Because I think we've got a real chance to speak in that same language of 45 again, coming out of COVID, because I think people have seen that the world of work is different and that businesses aren't crisis proof as well, and that people can work in different ways and that healthcare needs investment. And that actually, most crises are combined crises that you can't just opt out of if you're wealthy enough. And I think we need to speak to that tune as well coming out of this. I think we need to read the mood of the nation not spook the root of the nation, but speak to it in language that they're familiar with. Because the most popular policy in the country, without a doubt, is furlough. Apart from the vaccine, but that's not really a policy, was furlough. And that yeah. is really the, the Tories acting against brand and working on getting money into people's pockets. And I think well, the Labour Party can speak to that. It shouldn't be embarrassed that it came from the Tories first, right? That they put it into place, therefore we sort of recoil from it. It should be that we embrace that and say, look, we're going to take it even further. You like this, don't you? But we're not just going to have it during a crisis. We're going to have it actually so it gives you economic security 
and your family moving forward. You know, that, that's what we've got to build on. We're, in a way, for the last five years, we, we've kept saying we're radical, we're radical, we're radical, we're radical. And then we weren't really. We were quite timid because you're not radical unless you understand where the country's at. Um, so that's my lesson. 97, speak to everyone and try and convince them. 45, understand where the country's at and speak to that tune. I think it's a yeah, really... sort, of, sort of as a follow-up. I'm, I'm sorry, Max. I'm just really interested in, in this sort of line of the uh, line of questioning. I promise you'll get to ask another question at the moment. Um, so, what, so obviously, you mentioned you mentioned furlough. I'm, I'm really, really glad you did because what we've seen, of course, is the the Tories basically taking a leaf out of John McDonald's book. And um, so, do you think that's do you think that's sort of changed permanently the debate around um, spending, taxation, all the rest of it, which historically Labour has been quite weak on, and the Tories have enjoyed quite a big advantage on you know, the the Margaret Thatcher myth of treat the country like a household. No, I don't. I don't think anything changes permanently. I don't believe. Uh, I mean, I would be contradicting myself at the start if I believe things ended in a permanent state. I think very much what we've got to do is speak to situations. And I think furlough spoke to a situation at a point of crisis. And that's why the Tories could do it in a point of crisis. They wouldn't have done it in 2019. They wouldn't have done it in 2018. They wouldn't have done it in 2017 because it didn't have any relevance in the country. If a Tory chancellor had stood up and said, look, I'm basically going to pay 70% of your wages, the country would have said, hold on, we voted for you as a Conservative leader. What, what were you doing? Like, have you lot of, <laughs> you've got something wrong here. Right, uh, Philip Hammond. But the country was in a position where the Tories needed to work against brand, against ideology, and so far they've been rewarded with for that in the opinion polls. What I think we need to say is actually, if you like what you've seen in furlough, and it has given your your family, your business, and you as an individual greater economic security, we just don't think this is there for a crisis, right? We, we this this is where the sort of pre-2019 stuff comes in, it's there for all time. Because actually the economy flourishes when individuals feel they have a semblance of economic security. And actually what the Tories have done for a decade now is chip away at economic security, ironically, until there was a crisis and then they didn't have an option but to put yeah. security back on the map. And security can't just be about the police, can't just be about the army, it has to be about people's back balances and the cash in people's pockets. And I think it's not about permanence. It's not about saying this is going to be for all time, because as Tony Benn actually said, again, something else he said, who would have thought I'd say, speak about Tony Benn twice in a, in one podcast? But he said, look, the fight goes on and on. It, it, there's no end point to it. There's no stop. Politics doesn't say, look, we're pulling up the drawbridge now. You know, it's finished. I've won, because that isn't how democracy works. So I don't think that we've fundamentally changed anything, but I think at the moment there's a vacuum in a language that we can speak that will be relevant to people in this country. And I think if we don't make it now, we will regret it. And I think it's really interesting just on that point to kind of ask you the question of, firstly, those two points you were saying, reading the country and also speaking to a broader kind of audience that you would ever done before, how do you personally feel Keir Starmer is doing on that? But also as a kind of secondary question to it, how does Labour to win kind of fit into that image, kind of fit into that mould of helping read the country and helping speak to hopefully a wider audience? Well, I mean, on, on the first lesson, the lesson of 97, I think at least Keir's trying. You 
<laughs> like he's at least attempting to speak to the country. I mean, whether he succeeds or not, I really hope he does, um, because I think we're better when Labour people are elected. At least he's made the effort to do that. And unless you make the effort to do that, it's never going to happen. Um, I think we're seeing some shoots of recovery in certain parts of the country. I think Anas has made an absolutely superb start in Scotland. I think we can yeah. all be proud of. Um, and I think he's moving in the right direction. Look, the electorate will decide. Right? We'll see. They, they often have a very different mindset from us. And if, if we go into sort of full prophecy mode on the electorate, we're often very disappointed and we become like those sort of end of the worlders who stand on the cliff just hoping it will happen tomorrow because it hasn't happened today. You know, I, I think the electorate will speak for themselves. I think having done numbers and numbers of calls on dialogue, I mean, we've all heard that whole music now far too many times. <laughs> <laughs> people like it, you know? People like it, they think he's a serious politician, they think he's smart, and they understand that he's in the middle of a pandemic, right? And that it's still early days. And I think the Labour vision has to be bigger than just the leader. It has to be about talking to the country. I think Keir is going to be part of that. I think he's got a team around him that are prepared to do part of that. And I hope internally Labour to win are going to be a key pillar of speaking that language because actually what we want to do is build a coalition within the Labour Party like I'm fed up of cheap easy divisions between you're on the right of the Labour Party you're on the left of the Labour Party right people think anyone that works for Labour to win who worked for West Streeting for a while must be on the right of the party well look I want universal basic income I want a number of left-wing uh, policy proposals that people wouldn't necessarily associate with our wing of the party and my message to listeners is clear that anyone that wants to see Labour win wants to see Keir flourish wants to see the shadow cabinet really present a compelling argument to the country is welcome in Labour to win there's no purity test with us right you just want need to want the Labour party to win and let's face it if you're a member of the Labour party and you don't want Labour to win that's a strange paradoxical position to be in anyway like it doesn't seem like a sensible use of your time because look we've all been to clp meetings and they're fine but they're not that exciting that i'd want to sit through them if i don't want to see the labor party in government or in local council or winning mayoralties or seats in the scottish parliament or the or the welsh parliament so yeah everybody is welcome to join labor to win to follow labor to win to engage with us if you want to see labor to to do well and there is no purity test there are no right ways to do it it's a feeling and if you feel that Keir is moving things in the right direction and that the Labour Party is the best vehicle for social democracy and sort of democratic socialism in this country come and join us get involved and it's really interesting the language that I just want to pick out from that and this may be me being the history and English student that I am, but the, the words that you used were join, follow and engage, not agree or accept, but it's that idea of getting involved, becoming part and helping and forming. And it's like, as you've said, you won't agree with absolutely everything that Keir Starmer does. I won't either, Matt won't either. But it's that idea of building a movement that can get Labour to win, ironically. So it's, it's really kind of interesting you touch on that point. How has kind of, I suppose, your role as national organizer gone about attempting to not just have Labour to win as the kind of the 
the birth child, if you will, of progress or labour first, but to stretch it out beyond those roots on that front? So I, I think when I came in in September, my sort of double aim was one to build a real sense of community within Labour to Win. Um, and I feel like we've done that with our, our monthly regular get togethers. And yes, you, you spoke about Peter, which was was a great session. But also the first two get togethers were with grassroots activists in their local parties about how to organise and how to win elections for the Labour Party. And it was it was very important for me to build that sense of a team and that actually there wasn't a sort of set hierarchy within Labour to win. Anyone that wants to support us is an important part of it. So that was very important on the sort of internal building a sense of self-resilience and self-confidence again in the Labour Party. But I also wanted us to be a part of the party that was outward looking, that wanted to take on the Tories, that wanted to remember that they are our political opponents rather than other people in our party. And that's why we've done regular phone banks. That's why we've been trying to get candidates around the country in the right places, be it Scotland, be it Wales, be it the West Midlands, be it the South West. And actually getting some of the, the bulk of the Labour membership out of London and into those more marginal areas of the country that we need to win. So we don't just want to be about internal politics, because actually that's not the main reason and that's not the most interesting reason to join the Labour Party. The most interesting reason to join the Labour Party is to try and change the country for the better. And you can only do that by beating the Tories. So we will continue, I hope, as long as I'm organiser and whoever replaces me down the line, hopefully in, in, in a while, um, <laughs> continues with that sense of community and that sense that we want to bring people in to Labour to win from the full spectrum of the party and that it very much is a coalition, but also to remember who our political opponents are. And that will always be the Tories, the Lib Dems and other smaller parties in the SNP in Scotland. Because until we can beat them, until we've got a Labour party that's match fit to beat them, the internal stuff really doesn't matter or it certainly doesn't matter as much anyway i was just having a pause to see whether matt done but i'll edit that out don't worry um no go for, go for it mate something i kind of want to touch on and you've touched on it there to kind of finish is anas anas over in scotland i think he's had the best start as a kind of a scottish labor leader that he could potentially have wished for and we obviously seen from this past weekend that he's choosing to stand in a Glasgow South constituency against Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, and we wish him the very best of luck. Yeah, I mean, immediately when I saw that, I'll be honest, I went, the kahunas on this man are impressive on this front <laughs> to do that. But this kind of ties in with it. His father was obviously an MP for this uh, kind of constituency, kind of previous, prior to him obviously wanting to stand or prior to Nicola Sturgeon standing. And even think his father and Nicola Sturgeon competed at one time. And it kind of ties in with his emotional roots to kind of Glasgow, but also emotional politics or a kind of a playing of politicians on emotional kind of ideals or agendas is obviously increasing of late. We talked in the pre-show about the importance of politicians playing on emotion beforehand. Do you mind kind of kind of talking about that and the importance of what Labour has to do to highlight the issues of, say, a universal basic income or uh, anything that may be kind of important going forward of not just the this is what we'll do for you, but this is more the emotional reason. This is why we're trying to do that. This is who we can help through our policies and our politics. Yeah, 
I mean, I think, first of all, I think Anas has made a great start. I think that that's undeniable and long may that continue. And I think he's got a very good chance if we support him, giving the SNP the shock of their lives come May. But we'll, we'll see on that. Um, in, t- in terms of emotion, I think that's quite important with our sort of pragmatic mainstream approach to the Labour Party. Because I think the, the common criticism from the left, um, and we've heard it again and again, and they're, they're perfectly entitled to make it, even though I think it's unfair, is that we're sort of a bloodless copy of them. You know, if only we were brave enough, if only we were bold enough, we would have the same politics. It's only a lack of courage or a real careerism that's stopping us sharing the same politics as them. And I don't think that's the case. I, I, I think the sort of mainstream member of the Labour Party views politics in a different way than we've seen in the last five years, and actually in an equally emotional way, in a way that says, I need to understand that my politics is invested in the history, in the culture, um, and in the mainstream of our country. And by that, I don't just mean the old stereotype of, of flag waving. I mean rooted in things that people care about, you know, in their everyday life. And I, I really urge the best emotional school to understand people's emotional ticks and what makes them work in politics is knocking on doors. There's no better way to understand people's emotional makeups and what they care about than actually asking them and listening to them. Because I think for far too many of us, we think there's just a Ten Commandments of socialism that if people deviate from, somehow they've got it wrong rather than us. And I think actually an hour on the doorstep would knock that out of most people because there's not, I I firmly believe that there is not a right way to do politics, right? There is not a right way. It's not a science in that way. It's very much an art of understanding. It's far more a literary skill, if anything. It's about understanding character. It's about making, understanding what makes them tick. It's about building a narrative that people can, associate themselves with and it's about understanding history but not being bound to it um and i think that is the skill that our part our part of the party can really work on because actually i think it should be our home turf we shouldn't be this sort of cold bloodless type of politics that actually our politics be based around dynamism and change and adaptation as i said earlier is the most emotive thing because it's based on speaking to people's lived emotions and not what we hope them to be but what they really are yeah absolutely so um as we mentioned as we mentioned earlier uh, you're on the executive um of labor for a basic income yeah. um obviously this this isn't as it uh, as as we record this this isn't labor party policy um yeah. we know that that keir starmer wants to um scrap universal credit and replace it with a, a fairer system although we're not sure what that would actually look like yet um, so how did you sort of find out more about um, universal basic income? What sort of persuaded you that that would be the, the best finance model for, for the future? So, I mean, I've been one of those saddos that's been into universal basic income. Although, ironically, I've always hated the name, and this is going to be my chance to plug national direct payments again. But anyway, that sort of mindset for a long time. Um, because... It really spoke to, to the politics that hopefully I've articulated earlier during uh, this discussion about dynamism and about freedom 
and about liberation. And I think that for far too long, the Labour Party has been quite paternalistic in, it, in its outlook. It, it tells people to live the lives that they think it's best. You know, the, the, the government sort of knows the life that you should live better than you know it yourself. And I think, I, I suppose I'm a socialist because ultimately I, I believe in a form of liberalism based around personal freedom and allowing people to live the lives they want to live. And I believe yeah. you can only be a true liberal with true freedom if you've got money in your pocket, right? Until you've got a, a sense of economic security, it's not easy to be a liberal. It's not easy to make brave choices. It's not easy to push the government. It's not easy to fight for change. And I always thought that direct um, income and direct basic income is, is the best route for it because it's the most direct route towards it. It passes a sort of Occam's razor test that it cuts away the chafe and the nonsense, you know? If we agree that people need more money in their pockets to help with economic growth and their own um, economic security, well, what's a better way of doing than put money in people's pockets? Um, I don't think it's a silver bullet on its own. I think it needs to come uh, with other policies and a, and a fuller agenda. But I do think, actually, it chimes with the mood of the country, and I think it chimes with politics at its best, which is dynamic, and able to adapt and is open to change. And I think you can only really do that if people have money in their pocket to feel the freedom and comfort to do so. Yeah, so so say, say for example, then, we'll, we'll enter a, uh, a a realm of fantasy and whimsy. If, if Lloyd Dudridge, Prime Minister, God, were to yeah. come to implement, <laughs> implement universal basic income um, yeah. or under whatever whatever other name you chose, how would, how would you go about implementing that? What would be... How, how do you envision universal basic income looking and working? Right. Well, in, if I can have a conceit and imagine this fantasy world being within a relatively short time frame from where we are now, right? So talking to where we are now, what I would do is I would look at where we are post-COVID, um, where we have to put forward an economic recovery agenda. And I would speak to businesses and say, look, you're going to need economic growth back in the system. You're going to need money in people's pockets. Now, there's going to be some businesses out there that really fundamentally um, benefit from changes in the labour market. Most of those are online. We know the big ones, the Amazons, the Googles, some clothing that have moved completely off the high street and online. And what that's meant is that there isn't um, as much in the way of labour, but there is certainly more in the way of people's and businesses' profits. I would say, look, if you want to have that environment where you continue just to thrive off the labour market, you need to put something back in. Because actually, in the long run, capitalism without capital in people's pockets isn't sustainable. And actually, we will put in some money as a government. We will put in some through the Treasury. But as part of a new contract with business to say that you understand you need to put something back in, and that would be in a form of a universal basic income. And what I would do is I wouldn't tax on profits because they're easily movable we've seen sadly in the last decade how easily they are able to be moved but on transactions because i think that's far harder to hide far harder to deny especially on places like amazon and like google where transactions obviously are recorded um, in a far more um, accessible way so i would sell it as part of a new contract with business because i think it benefits individuals i think it benefits families and i also think it benefits businesses as well I love that. And I think that is probably 
the perfect place to kind of leave it. Lloyd Dudridge as Prime Minister, setting in place at university. <laughs> No, I definitely agree. Maybe maybe in another lifetime then. But um, <laughs> Lloyd, just want to say from both Matt and I, thank you so much for being, as we said at the start, the guinea pig for the first episode. It's been brilliant. Um, I've definitely learned a lot. I've been kind of sat here nodding, kind of just taking notes of everything that you've basically kind of well, imparted your wisdom onto us, if you will, on that front. But yeah, from Matt and I, thank you so much. And uh, yeah, everyone listening, I hope you've really enjoyed it and uh, managed to get as much as I have from this. Uh, we'll see you soon, everybody.